0: The book of Second Kings and chapter 25 this morning. Second Kings. So if you have a Bible with you, I always invite you to bring one. Second Kings chapter 25, which is the last chapter of the book and almost the last sermon. <laughs> almost. One more next week. We'll wrap this whole series up on Kings. The final chapter, that's actually my title, the final chapter, that's probably the most unimaginative title in the history of sermon titles, but it also has a double meaning. Yes, this is the last chapter of the book, but it is also the final chapter in the history of the nation of Israel, at least for now. This chapter records the complete destruction and exile of the nation of Judah by the Babylonian forces under King Nebuchadnezzar. The tragic, sad, almost unbelievable ending to what we have been reading. Now this ending of the nation actually begins in the preceding chapters that we looked at two times ago, two Sundays ago, last time. It begins after the death of Josiah, who was the great king, perhaps the greatest king in Judah, one of the best kings who had that extensive reform, removing all forms of idolatry, renewing the covenant, kind of the pinnacle of their faithfulness. But after his early death, age 39, he dies. That's what precipitates this very rapid, irreversible descent into judgment and exile. And that's what these last chapters give us, a very rapid decline, a rush into this final judgment of the nations. So just to remind you, last time we were introduced to the last four kings of Judah. The last four kings, I'll just put them up like I did last time, just all at once there. There's this kind of... Unusual symmetry to these last four kings as they're given to us. Jehoahaz, three months, he was the son of Josiah. He only lasts three months. He's actually exiled down to Egypt. We hear nothing more of him. Followed by Jehoiakim, who reigns 11 years, but he's appointed by the foreign king, Necho, Pharaoh at that time, and then Babylon takes over and he rebels. And that rebellion is costly. The next king comes, Jehoiachin. Again, once again, only lasts three months. But now the great Assyrian army, or excuse me, Babylonian army, has come to begin to lay siege to Jerusalem and to the nation. And Jehoiachin is exiled. He's taken into Babylon. Only reigns three months. Nebuchadnezzar points another king. Another son here, Zedekiah, He changes his name to Zedekiah, who will also reign 11 years. He's the last king. I highlight him because that's the king we'll see again this morning. He's the last king. He's evil in the sight of the Lord. All four of these kings, that's the description. They do evil in the sight of the Lord. They plunge the nation into this final judgment. And the last thing we read of Zedekiah is that he rebelled against Babylon which is ominous, that does not ever go well. So we're going to pick it up there, but just to remind you, we we saw last week the ascendancy of this great empire of Babylon. We traced some of that history last week. They are the new superpower of the region, the new superpower on the block. They dominate, and now they completely control the whole region that Israel and Judah is in. It's under Babylonian control, the king Nebuchadnezzar, Judah, and what's left here is a really a vassal state. God uses this nation as his instrument of judgment. That's what's really remarkable. This is a brutal, pagan, godless, evil nation and king, and God says, they're my instrument, my instrument for judgment. It's really remarkable we thought on some of that last Sunday or two Sundays ago the sovereignty of God over nations and he uses this nation to begin to judge his people it doesn't come all at once we're going to see the final curtain here this morning comes down but it's actually in a series i'll just list these out the deportations to babylon it comes there's actually 3 separate deportations of the people of judah to babylon the first is in 605 bc That's Daniel. So that's in chapter 24, verse 1. That's when Nebuchadnezzar comes and takes over this region after that battle of Carchemish. 605 B.C. he comes, and now he reigns. He subjects the new king there, the king in Judah. He subjects him as a vassal state, but he takes some of them captive, the nobles. Some of the royal family, the nobles, the best and brightest Of Judah, Daniel and his friends. Do you remember? You can read about that in the first chapter of the book of Daniel there. So that begins the deportation. That really begins some of the exile of the nation. But then we saw that this king, Jehoiakim, he rebelled against Babylon. As I said, that never sits well. So he comes back, next deportation, 597 BC, comes back eight years later. Begins to lay siege, and now he takes the king into exile, Jehoiachin, and his family. And this is one of the next great deportations of the people. In fact, all the skilled workers, the craftsmen, the artisans are taken. By the way, historical note, this is when Ezekiel, the prophet, is taken in exile. Ezekiel, if you don't know the book of Ezekiel, it's one of the prophets during this time. Ezekiel, actually, his ministry is in Babylon, That's when he's ministering, preaching, proclaiming. He is actually in exile with the people in Babylon. So he gets taken during this time. And we're told 10,000 are taken captive in this time. So that's the second deportation. And now the last, the final curtain, I said, 587 BC is the final exile of the nation. And not just the exile, but the complete destruction of the nation, Jerusalem and everything. That's what we're going to read about now, this morning, in our chapter, is this final curtain, as I said, the final chapter of their history, the final exile of the nation. Let me begin reading just back there in chapter 24, if you have your Bible, in verse 18, where we were introduced to the last king of Judah. His name is Zedekiah. It was Mattaniah, but they changed his name, appointed him. He's supposed to be kind of the puppet king for Babylon, he is appointed, and we read this, it's on the screen there, it says, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, his mother's name was Hamiltal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, and he did evil in the sight of Yahweh according to all that Jehoiakim had done, and then this statement, you remember it, for through the anger of Yahweh, this came about in Jerusalem and Judah until he cast Them out from his presence or out of his sight. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. It's the last thing we saw last time we were here in Kings. Is that all that is happening here is under the orchestration of the Lord. There are a lot of political things happening. Reasons for conquering. Military reasons. Economic reasons. Political reasons. Behind all of that is the Lord. It's Yahweh orchestrating, bringing judgment. In those ominous words there in verse 20, it's through the anger of Yahweh this came about. All of this that's happening, including the appointment of Zedekiah and his rebellion, all of this is coming about through the anger. That's the word for wrath, the anger of the Lord for sin, for their rebellion, for their idolatry. He is bringing it to pass. So these aren't just political events They might look like it if you're just an observer. This is actually the judgment of the Lord through these nations, through Babylon upon his people until he casts them out of his sight. He said such scary words. Where he removes his favor, he casts them out of his sight. Here, specifically, that means removing them from the land of Canaan, the promised land. That's the way under this covenant that they are removed from his sight. They are taken out of the land of Canaan. That's why the judgment is not simply destroying them, not simply destroying Jerusalem, but it is actually exile. So God uses these people, and that was part of their tactic. We saw it with Assyria, now we see it with Babylon. Part of the tactic was, as they conquered people, was to deport them, what we just saw, deport, exile them to the, so they couldn't rise up again. They'll leave some of the poorest of the land, but they exile them. That's what it means here to be removed from the Lord's sight. It's removal from the promised land. And then we read that Zedekiah rebels, which again is foolish. So let's pick up now chapter 25. I'm just going to read chapter 25. This is the last chapter, the final chapter, as I said. I'm going to read this chapter, and let's note it. The, the chapter comes in three sections three sections. Each section begins with a chronological note, chronological marker. That's how you kind of break this chapter down into these three sections. I'll just give them to you as I read. So the first part of chapter 25 is the loss of the king. That's the structure here, the loss of the king. So let's read it. Chapter 25, starting in verse one. Now it came about in the ninth year of his reign. That's Zedekiah's reign. Remember, he's just rebelled on the 10th day of the 10th month. These dates are very exact because what's happening here is really, really important. (laughs) So they give these exact dates. The 10th day of the 10th month that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came. He and all his army against Jerusalem, camped against it, built a siege wall all around it. So the city was under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. And on the 9th day of the 4th month, The famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. So this siege, this is what they did, starve you out. The siege is going to be about 18 months. It's left to our imagination how horrific this is. You can read some of the descriptions in the prophets about this starvation that's happening. There's no food. Verse 4, the city was broken into. So they break through into the city, and all the men of war, this is whatever army they have left there, flee. They fled by night at the gate. They don't fight. They fled by night at the gate between the two walls, which was by the king's garden, though the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, were all around the city. And they went out by the way of the Arba. So they're trying to flee, the army. But the army, the king with them, of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and he passed sentence on him. And they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and then they put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon. So that's the first section. Loss of the king. How brutal, isn't it? I said these are these are brutal kings, brutal rulers with these kind of tactics, and it's the Lord's instrument. Remember, the Lord is doing it. So the king is gone, they destroy the royal offspring before his eyes, just to humiliate him and then gouge out his eyes. You you get the symbolism. It's the last thing you're gonna see. Your whole family has just been killed. Gouge out his eyes, they take him. We don't hear another word about Zedekiah. Just his humiliation is complete. The second section here is the loss of the city. Starting in verse 8, next geographic note. This will go all the way down to verse 26. Now this one comes in four, four vignettes. So our author wants us to see this. He wants us to linger here a little bit and see the loss, the destruction that's happening of the city. So he gives us four pictures, four vignettes here. The first one is the fall of the city itself. So look at verse 8. Now, on the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of the king Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, so 587 now, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar, excuse me, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he burned the house of Yahweh, that's the temple, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every great house he burned with fire. So all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Then the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, and the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. So there, there's the city has gone the great monuments. If, if you can imagine our country being conquered in our capital, Washington, D.C., and burning the White House and the Capitol and the Supreme Court, right? That's the imagery here. Doing away with all all that represents this city here. They devastate and they tear down the walls. The city is destroyed. The people are taken captive. So that's the first vignette. Next vignette Here deals with the temple itself. He can't help but focus in on the temple. Verse 13. Now the bronze pillars, which were in the house of Yahweh, and the stands in the bronze, and the bronze sea, which were in the house of Yahweh, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. They took away the pots, the shovels, the snuffers, the spoons, all the bronze vessels which were used in the temple service. The captain of the guard also took away the firepans and the basins, what was fine gold and what was fine silver, the two pillars, the one sea, the stands which Solomon had made for the house of Yahweh, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. The height of one pillar was 18 cubits, and a bronze, cap- bronze capital was on it. The height of the capital was three cubits, and the network and the pomegranates of the capital all around, all of bronze. And the second pillar was like these with the network. So he just pauses to describe the dismantling of the temple. Next Scene, vignette, is the execution of selected leaders. Verse 18. Then the captain of the guard took Saraiah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, with the three officers of the temple. And from the city he took one official who was overseer of the men of war, and five of the king's advisers who were found in the city, and the scribe of the captain of the army who mustered the people of the land, and sixty men of the people of the land who were found in the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. Then the king of Babylon struck them down, put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was led away into exile from its land. This is just complete intimidation, right? You just round up some of the leaders who are there and just execute them. So this is, they're not worried about civilian casualties, right? There's, this, there's no such distinction in this kind of warfare. This is to completely subjugate the people. And then those words, they just led Judah into exile. The last vignette, the last scene, is the people who are still in the land. They leave, remember, some of the poorest. Now, as for the, verse 22, As for the people who were left in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, he appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, over them. When all the captains of the forces... They and their men. Now I take it, just pause here. I take it that that's, remember the army had scattered when they caught the king and his family. They have scattered. So I take it there's some of those that have been hiding and scattering. So there are a few left here. And he names these five captains um, of, of the army, it says. So they came. Uh, they heard they'd appointed Gedaliah the governor. Just pick it up there in verse 23. And they came to Gedaliah to Mizpah. Mizpah's the new center because Jerusalem's destroyed. And then he names them, namely Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, Johanan, the son of Kareah, Sariah, the son of Tanhumeth, the Netophathite, and Jazaniah, the son of Makathite, they and their men. And Gedaliah swore to them and their men and said to them, Do not be afraid of the servants of the Chaldeans. Live in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it will be well with you. But it came about in the seventh month, That Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishamah, of the royal blood, came with ten men and struck Gedaliah down so that he died, along with the Jews and the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. Then all the people, both great and small, and the captains of the forces, went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. So that's what happens to the people in the land. More revolt. The third section is an appendix. It's an appendix, it's a very unusual appendix And that's where we're just going to leave it for next week okay. that's what We're going to finish the book there with this most unusual ending This book had the most bizarre beginning And it has a very cryptic, unusual ending So I'm going to save that part as we kind of wrap up the book of Kings next week So we'll look, look for that I want us to just pause here and just allow the enormity of this event that we just read to sink in, to hit us. What began nearly a thousand years prior to these events with God hearing the cry of his people in bondage in Egypt and coming to rescue the seed of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, to rescue them through that great exodus event, to bring them to Mount Sinai, to form them as his people, his nation, to enter into this covenant with them as his people a thousand years ago. What began there is now over. It's over. There is nothing left. Let that hit you. There's no more Jerusalem, the great city. There's no more temple. There's no more king. There's no more land. It's over. Their entire identity as a people is gone. It's gone. This is who they are as a people in the land with the temple. In Jerusalem, with the king, all of their identity is gone. What would you think as an Israelite? What would you think sitting by the rivers of Babylon? If you want to hear some of the emotion of it, our author our author reports it like a reporter, just the facts. There's no emotion here. But you read the prophets, full emotion. The book of Lamentations, if you know that book, is, we think, probably written by Jeremiah. It's anonymous, but most would ascribe it to Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet who lived right during these times. He lived right through all that we just read about. In fact, Jeremiah, they they took him down into Egypt. He's going to die there. He didn't want to go. They shouldn't have gone, but they took him down. And so Jeremiah, if he wrote this book, he'd lament. You can read all of Lamentations. Here's just a sample from chapter 1. He said, For these things I weep. My eyes run down with water, because far from me is a comforter, one who restores my soul. My children are desolate, because the enemy has prevailed. The Lord is righteous. We have rebelled against His command. Now hear, now all peoples, behold my pain. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. The whole book is his lamentation, his weeping. This is a devastating event. So I just just want you to pause. We can read over these things, like just check it off, a historical event that happened, Exile 587. Imagine it. Try to imagine it. Try to put yourself here. This is one of those most significant events in redemptive history. You're trying to get a handle on your Bible and kind of the history of redemption and those significant events that take place. This is one of those, the exile of Judah to Babylon. Now, what's surprising somewhat about this account, as I said, he just gives it like a reporter. Matter of fact, here's what happened. What's surprising is the absence of any summary explanation of why it happened. Why did this happen? And I say that's surprising because when the northern kingdom, Israel, was taken into exile by Assyria that time, the whole chapter explained why it happened. It gave very few events of what happened, but a lot on why it happened. But we said there, we're supposed to read this a bit back into that account, chapter 17 of Second Kings, because the same reasons Israel was taken captive are the same reasons Judah is taken captive, because of their covenant unfaithfulness, because they have forsaken the Lord. So we're supposed to see Judah reflected there in, in Israel, and it's the same reasons, and really we don't need an explanation. By the time we get to the end of this book, we don't need an explanation. It has been woven into the very narrative of the book. Because of their covenant unfaithfulness, their idolatry, their forsaking, time after time after time. That's what this book has been about, this depressing book of kings, is their unfaithfulness. So we don't need an explanation at this point. We know why. It is the Lord who has brought it about his judgment. Now, let me I'm gonna give you just three observations here from this account to help us linger a bit in the weight of this event three, and then we'll end just with a couple of implications here. So here, here's the first observation. This was a fulfillment of God's word. What happens here is a fulfillment of God's word. I highlight that because that's such a major theme of the book of Kings. Over and over again, we've seen that this history is unfolding according to the word of Yahweh, and his word is always certain. What he says comes to pass. We're supposed to gain confidence in the reliability of God's word as we read these stories, because we see it over and over that it comes to pass. So that's one of the main motifs or themes of the book of Kings. God's word is infallible, and these things happen according to his word. Now, I say this is a fulfillment of God's word. I'm not thinking just merely of some of the recent predictions that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. We have those but I'm thinking going all the way back to the beginning. Remember I mentioned the beginning almost a thousand years prior to when they made the covenant, with, when they entered into that covenant at Mount Sinai. All the way back there, God spoke and his word comes to pass. You find those words in the book of Deuteronomy. I won't read them all, just a portion, Deuteronomy 28. So just note under this fulfillment, the destruction and exile of Judah was a fulfillment of the covenant judgments promised by God. These judgments, these promised judgments were given nearly a thousand years ago. So just listen, listen to a sampling of them. You can read all of chapter 28. It's a lengthy chapter of what the Lord will do if they break the covenant. They've entered into a covenant and they're breaking the covenant. What will he bring? It says... The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you do not understand, a nation of fierce countenance who shall have no respect for the old, nor show favor to the young. That's exactly what's happened with the coming of Babylon, right? And it shall besiege you. "...in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout your land. And it shall besiege you in all your towns throughout your land which the Lord your God has given you." And he goes on to describe the kind of famine that they will face in the land. And finally he says, "...the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you and your fathers have not known." And among those nations you shall find no rest. There shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But there Yahweh will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and despair of soul. That's what he said would happen, and now it's happened. Exactly what he said. So this is not surprising that way that this would come. God's word comes to pass. It also, just next note there, it included the promise of the temple's destruction. The promise of the temple's destruction. Now, when Deuteronomy was written, the temple wasn't built yet. They had the tabernacle. But when the temple is built, the Lord says the same things. If you remember back in our study of Kings, way back to the beginning, probably the highlight of the whole book of Kings was the construction of the temple. God's dwelling in the midst of his people and and the grand building of that. And we spent several chapters. The author gives us several chapters of those details. But right after the temple is finished... After Solomon dedicates the temple, the Lord says this. I'll put this on the screen. 1 Kings chapter 9. You can see it there. Starting verse 4. As for you, speaking to Solomon now. If you will walk before me as your father David walked in the integrity of heart and uprightness according to all that I have commanded you and keep my statutes and my commandments, then I will establish your throne and your kingdom over Israel forever. Just as I promised to David. But, here it is, verse 6. If you and your sons shall indeed turn away from following me and shall not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you and shall go and serve other gods and worship then, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them and the house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. That's the temple. So Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the people. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss and say, why has Yahweh done this to this land and to this house? And they will say, because they forsook Yahweh, their God, and brought their, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and adopted other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, Yahweh has brought all this adversity on them. So he, he promised this would happen. And now it has happened. Now... It's going to lead here to second observation, but before I get there, just concerning the temple, we're back in 2 Kings 25 here, concerning the temple, did you notice the author, he just, he couldn't help the pause and describe some of the dismantling of the temple, because that's the centerpiece, right, the temple, and so he gives that vignette that's just focused on this building, you see the image there on the screen, we've used this back in the building of the temple. This building that represented God's dwelling with his people his rest among his people The author lingers here very intentionally over the dismantling because this is such a shocking element The temple is destroyed now we have seen the temple being looted throughout kings So a lot of that gold you can see the cutaway the gold the utensils the gold have been taken at different times And then replaced and taken again and then replaced So a lot of that gold by this time is gone. In fact, the first time Nebuchadnezzar came, remember he took a lot of the gold out of the temple, a lot of the things out of the temple. But the structure itself still is standing at this point. And what's left really is the bronze. So our author highlights it and he describes. So the sea, do you see that? It's just called the bronze sea because that's that big laver there of water. That would hold 11,000 gallons of water. We looked at that, what it symbolizes and all that. So they, they took that down and cut it up and hauled it away. And then the stands or all those other things that hold smaller flavors of, of water there. They cut those all up. And then he can't help but focus on those pillars. So the pillars there are at the front of the temple. The two pillars. One of them's cut away there, maybe symbolically. But here are the two pillars. They gave them names. Do you remember these names? Jachin. He will establish. Boaz, in him is strength. Those two pillars represented the promise and the power of Yahweh. And they're massive. You can't just haul those away. So they cut them up. Take them down. They completely dismantle. They burn the temple and then dismantle and take everything they can and take the bronze. What a sad event. This temple that signified the dwelling of God. So that leads just to the second observation. So the first, this is all a fulfillment of God's word. The second, the temple was not inviolable. That's the second. The temple was not inviolable. Inviolable, big word. Just means it wasn't indestructible. It wasn't that you couldn't touch it. it. It could come down and it did. The temple. The temple itself. So note this. The temple was no safeguard against God's judgment. The temple itself was no safeguard against God's judgment. I mention that because that was a prevailing perspective of the day. The people of Judah. We have the temple. We have God's dwelling. He will certainly never judge us. Because we have the temple. Right? And here we learn the temple itself. He promised this. He promised this would happen. They didn't believe him. And they began to just trust in the physical temple, that it existed. Jeremiah said he's prophesying during this time. And in chapter 7, he says this to the people of Judah. Do not trust in deceptive words saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And if we got the temple. God won't hurt us. God won't judge us. Don't be deceived. Those are deceptive words. The temple will not protect you. He goes on to say, if you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, the temple, which I called by my name and say, we are delivered that you may do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it. And then he says, I'm going to destroy it. This deceptiveness to engage in idolatry, to engage in stealing, and we're all that you want to, and then come to the temple and stand before the Lord and say, We're delivered. We're his people. Says that's deceptive words. This temple will not save you. It won't protect you. Oh the tendency to trust in these externals. Isn't it? Still a tendency today. To trust in externals. We're safe. They were not safe. They trusted in the temple. And were devoid of a heart that loved Yahweh. They were devoid of a heart that treasured him. And exhibited that by their faithfulness. And they clung to an external temple. It's gone. So again, another note, we learned the temple was inadequate to secure God's presence with his people. That's what we learned. The temple is a heap of ruins now. That great building. It's part of the storyline, isn't it? The temple was inadequate to serve, secure God's presence with his people. Remember, the primary significance of the temple, that building we just saw was God's dwelling, God's presence in the midst of his people. God taking his rest on his throne, so to speak. Inviting the people to enter his rest. There's a way of approach to God. God dwells with us. That's the significance of the temple. Now he is removing them from his presence. And the temple is a heap of ruins. And they are out of the land because the temple could never ultimately secure God's presence. There must be something better. God's glory, so to speak, his presence has departed. That's what Ezekiel, remember I said Ezekiel is one of these prophets who's taken captive and he's, he's over in Babylon writing and he's saying, it's, it's going to come down. And, and he begins his prophecy or part of his prophecy by seeing that symbol of the glory of the Lord departing. It's departing. That's right, because he's removing the people from his presence. The temple is torn. Even the people in Jesus' day, we read about the temple this morning, and Zacharias in the temple, they do, we, we'll see the history, they do rebuild this temple, and Herod beautifies the temple, and even in Jesus' day, I was reading, my part of my Bible reading this week was the end of the Gospel of Luke, and I was just noting how Jesus was there teaching in that final week of his life, and the people were noticing how beautiful the temple was. Look at how beautiful these stones are, this is great, and Jesus says, it's all coming down. Not one stone will be left on another. They have to learn the same thing. And then the next chapter as he's being crucified and dies, that veil of that temple is torn in two. Do you remember? It's over. It's torn in two. There's no more need for a temple with Jesus here. The presence of God is now coming forth, so to speak, to all peoples, to the nations. The temple could not secure it. Christ will. That's where the story goes. We've seen that so many times. If, if you want to go back and review, we had a whole just message on the significance of the temple in the New Testament. I won't review all of that. Something better than the temple must come. Last observation, just really quickly, and then we'll just close with a couple implications. Number three, the return to Egypt. The return to Egypt. That's the last description, the last vignette, before the appendix, the very strange appendix that we'll look at next week. There's a few people who remain in the land. Gedaliah is appointed. Now Gedaliah is a faithful man. His father served Jeremiah. Gedaliah is faithful, and he just tells the people, hey, just submit to the king of Babylon, and it will be okay. And he's right. That's exactly what Jeremiah had told them to do. At this stage in Israel's history... To be faithful to the Lord meant submitting to his judgment through Nebuchadnezzar. Don't resist it. Now, they hated Jeremiah. They rebelled against him, and they resisted. And you see what happens. So <clears throat> they are not to resist. Gedaliah knows that. So he's encouraging to not resist. But, of course, one more time, they disobey. Right. They kill him. Probably, we're told, this Ishmael has royal blood. Maybe he has designs on some kind of ruling so they kill him, but now they're so afraid because they kill some of the Chaldeans that they flee to Egypt, and we never hear about them here in this book again. And now we've come full circle, haven't we? We started in Egypt 1,000 years ago, and we end in Egypt here in exile. How sad. The hopeful remnant rejects the covenant by fleeing to Egypt. That's what their actions signify. A return to Egypt is you just rejected the covenant. God brought you out of Egypt and made a covenant. You return to Egypt, you reject him. And we've come full circle. So even the people of the land that were left, and we might think, well, well there God has his remnant. There's a hopeful start, there's a remnant. There's no remnant. It's all gone. So we're left, the final impression, the desolation and removal is complete. It's total. Even those that were left now have fled to Egypt. How devastating. Devastating. So that's the end, almost. As I said, except for this very unusual ending that we'll look at next week. Let me just finish with these two implications. Two implications, how, how are we as Christians, how are we supposed to read these events? We're supposed to read them, by the way, we're meant to, how, how should we read these events? Well, we've been seeing that all through Kings, and there are many things to say, and we're going to say more things next week, but at least these two things, one, the warning of God's certain judgment. The warning of God's certain judgment Now I know I sound like a broken record Because you say That's what you say every week <laughs> That's true The last several weeks Because the author just It just keeps coming in front of us That's the takeaway God's judgment is certain God's judgment is inevitable We're meant to hear it We're meant to see it So we see it one more time The warning of God's certain judgment God, God won't really judge will he? Isn't that the mentality of so many? God won't, he won't really judge, will he? Again, imagine the mentality of those in Judah. I know, I know those, I know those predictions of judgment. I know those warnings. But really, he's not really, he's not really going to destroy the temple. He's not really going to destroy Jerusalem. He won't really judge, will he? He does. So as New Testament readers, let this catastrophic, almost unimaginable reality of Judah's judgment seems almost unbelievable. Let it sober us that God does and He will judge. And that's, the, that's the point of this account. This is not just siege warfare, not just good history that we're reading here. This is the Lord. This comes about through his wrath, remember? That's how we began. So how do we read it? This is a harbinger, portent, it's pointing us forward, of final judgment, away from the presence of the Lord. That's the description that's used, especially in chapter 24, of what this judgment is, away from his presence. That's ultimately what judgment is, to be removed from the gracious presence of the Lord and to experience only his wrath. How sobering is that? So all these kinds of judgments we have learned to read from a New Testament perspective are harbingers, are pointers of final judgment. That God indeed does judge. Now I know most people today do not believe this. They don't believe this. Again, just that in their hearts saying, He won't judge. God won't won't judge. Either scoffing against it, scoffing against us Christians, like Peter writes about in 2 Peter 3, where is the promise of his coming? You guys are always talking about that. Everything just goes on as it always has. That's not going to happen. It's either scoffing or just simply hopeful that he's too kind. My, my view, my understanding of God, my view is he's too kind to actually judge. I just can't believe in hell, a judgment. That's just the prevalent mentality. People sleepwalking, oblivious to this reality that's on the horizon. It's part of the message of the Bible to wake up. So let it sober us that it's real if we see it here. Sometimes people think, well, yeah, that was, that was back in that Old Testament. You know, that Old Testament God, pretty rough, right? Just pretty angry, full of judgment. But the New Testament God is kindler kinder and gentler God. Actually, if you read the Bible, this judgment of God ratchets it up from Old Testament to New Testament. You know that. The, yeah, these are just temporal kind of sufferings, and they're horrific, but they're pointing to something much more horrific. It actually goes up. I'm thinking here of the writer of Hebrews, who, uh, in a few places, gives these warnings. He refers back to Old Testament kind of judgments, but he says, this is chapter 10, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins." Now, remember, he's writing to the church. He's writing to us. He's writing to those professing to be Christians. If we go on sinning, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a certain terrifying Expectation, a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses, that is the old covenant, its what we're reading about, they set that aside. Anyone who set that aside dies without mercy on the basis of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, he says. That is a sobering word really sobering so if anything it goes up here these are examples this is an example of God's judgment on his covenant people so it's not just a harbinger of final judgment but also a judgment on God's covenant people that's who Israel is they're not any people they are his covenant people they're in covenant with him these are the covenant curses being brought to bear And as God's covenant people here this morning under the new covenant, covenant people, again, we're to take notice. That is, these are written as examples for us. So what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 as he's referring to different judgments in the Old Testament, he says these were written as an example. They were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages come. Take heed, you who think you stand, lest you fall. So we're supposed to be sobered by these, sobered by these judgments. They were externally part of the covenant, but their heart was full of idolatry. Take warning, Paul says in that text in Corinthians, against idolatry. You who are externally part of the church, where's your heart? Again, in the writer of Hebrews says, Take care lest there be an evil, unbelieving heart in any one of you. That's a sobering word. So it's full of warning to us. Full of warning to us. Much more we could say there. I'll I'll just leave it as we've said it many times. But just end with this note. the, The hope of restoration. That's the second implication. This is an end. A cataclysmic end here for Judah, but it's not the end, as we know, of God's plan of his program. There is hope of restoration, and that's what we'll see next week, even in this cryptic kind of ending. There's a sliver of hope there, though it seems very dim. God's kingdom promises to his people are unfailing and eternal. That promise to Abraham still stands. His promise to David of an everlasting throne still stands just remains to be seen how that's going to be worked out because this hasn't worked. (laughs) That's the message of kings. That didn't work well. It ends in this kind of destruction. That's all part of God's purposing and his plan. Things are not off track here, though they seem very hopeless and devastating. And that includes the promise of restoration. The restoration of his people. So we don't have time. I don't have time to read it. You can go back and read even in the Old Covenant, Deuteronomy chapter 30, after what I read earlier today about the curses, the promise of restoration after exile. God promised. That word of promise is just as valid as his word of judgment. And it will not fail. And he hints there at a better covenant that must come. Something better must come. Something better, much better, Drastically better has to happen for those covenant promises to come to pass. For God to dwell in the midst of his people. And something better has come. That's the story. That's the story. It's the story of Christmas. (laughs) Emmanuel has come. The better king. The son of David. Who is more. God in the flesh. As a savior king again, we'll leave it for next week and go and read Isaiah chapter 9 about in the context of exile and darkness, a light shall shine on them. And that light is ultimately the son that is given, the child that is born who is the ultimate seed of David. That's where the story goes. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's what we're going to see more of next week as we end. That's our refuge. That's our refuge this morning. God's judgment is certain. He is just. He brings it to pass. And yet full of mercy has provided a refuge. A glorious refuge. An unfailing refuge in His Son, the King, Jesus, our Savior. May your refuge be in Him this morning. Let me pray for us. We'll pick it up, finish it next week. Let's. We'll pray, then we'll sing this familiar But good Christmas carol as we end. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for Emmanuel. God with us in the person of your son. Rejoice. Rejoice, he has come. Hmm. Oh come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. He has come to ransom us, to rescue us. May we be sober today of the reality of judgment. May we be compelled to warn others that this is real. This is coming. And yet there's a refuge. So give us doors, open doors to speak of this glorious truth this Christmas. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.